Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. It's Monday, May 18th, 2020. This is Chris Johnson, Lifeline's National Director of Church Partnerships. Today, we are going to continue our study on the book of Ezekiel, and we'll be looking at chapters number four and five. As we see the book of Ezekiel, and as we have heard in the last couple of weeks, the theme of this book ultimately is the glory of God. Uh, Ezekiel is shining a light on God's holiness, God's majesty, uh, and the fact that, that he is worthy of our worship and ultimately of uh, everything that we are. We know that Ezekiel himself is a part of this Babylonian captivity where uh, many have been taken and removed from their homeland and are uh, find themselves now in captivity in Babylonia. Uh, Jerusalem has not yet fallen. Uh, there are some that probably thought that this time of captivity would be a short process, um, that they would you know, be able to see a speedy return. They would be gone for a season to be able to get back to their homeland soon and really you know, kind of thought that this would not uh, last very long. And, and really, they, they could have prided themselves in this fact, the fact that, that Jerusalem was still standing uh, at this point. Uh, I've been blessed to travel to Israel on two different occasions. And uh, I tell you, uh, Jerusalem sure, certainly is a special place. Uh, I remember the first time that I, that I visited Jerusalem, I had spent the first part of our trip. We had been up in uh, the northern part of Israel and in, in, around the Sea of Galilee and seeing the sights there. And um, really, as you make your way out of Galilee, moving south toward Jerusalem, it, you kind of hit a stretch where there's really not much around you and it's somewhat desolate. And, but there's this time where you go across, you're, you're traveling on the road and, and, you, and you come upon this big curve and you go around this curve. And as you get to the other side of that curve, man, it just opens up this beautiful picture. This beautiful picture unfolds before you of this gorgeous city uh, that has meant so much to the people of Israel and ultimately to all mankind um, and, and will mean even more to us in the future. But we see this, just this beautiful city unfolds. And so um, the people of, of, of Israel, the Jewish people, they love Jerusalem. And even now today, long to, to be there, worship together in Jerusalem. And so uh, there was kind of this, this sense of pride about, uh, about this city and, and the fact that, that it had not yet fallen at this point. But Ezekiel now is going to have to share really some pretty hard news for them. So something that's going to be difficult for them to hear. He is going to be, of course, prophesying about the ultimate fall and destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, he's been called to, to preach and prophesy something that, that's very difficult for the people to hear. And uh, he's really about to show them how bad things really are going to get uh, during this time and season of captivity. You know, there are others in scripture that we've seen that have had to proclaim difficult messages that sometimes didn't make sense to the people around them or, or maybe was difficult to swallow and hard uh, thing to have to step up to uh, to proclaim. Uh, I think of Noah. You know, Noah uh, preached for many, many years that it would that the the world was going to end by flood. That it was there was going to be a flood that would cover the world, and uh, and and at that point it had not even rained. So what a what a crazy message and how crazy he must have looked to the people around him. Uh, think about Gideon. 
you know, Gideon couldn't be effective and truly be what God wanted him to be until he uh, grew his army down to the smallest size possible. And uh, God wanted to, of course, prove himself. And then, of course, the method of their victory was just uh, something that, that, that totally didn't make sense to anyone, uh, probably especially even to Gideon. Uh, I think of Elijah. You know, the first assignment that we see of Elijah, the great prophet, uh, was that he was called to, to stand against uh, Ahab and, and Jezebel, two of the most wicked leaders in the history of the Jewish people. And he was to proclaim to them that it was going to rain, and or not going to rain, that there was going to be a time of uh, of dryness and, and, and a season of, of no rain whatsoever, uh, great drought. And and so we see over and over again these people that are that are called to bring a, a difficult message. And, and Ezekiel certainly was in that category as well. Um, we saw at the end of chapter number three how that uh, really he was not even able to speak his own words. Everything that he spoken would would just be the word of God. Um, you know, there's some comfort in that, right? To know that anything that we say is is the word of God, and, and that's that's what the people needed to hear. They didn't need to hear Ezekiel's thoughts and opinions on things, his commentary. They needed to hear from God. And, and then what, how true is that in our world today as well? Um, you know, people don't need to hear what we think. People don't need to hear uh, our perspective. They need God's perspective. And so may we be faithful to preach and proclaim uh, God's word, even if it doesn't make sense to the world around us, uh, even if it seems odd and foolish uh, to the world. Of course, we know that God uses the foolishness of preaching uh, to draw people and bring people to himself. But Ezekiel now, as we uh, get ready to uh, share the, these chapters, chapter number four and five, we see that Ezekiel is being called to spend more than a year preaching this very unpopular message uh, regarding God's judgment and ultimately the, the destruction of Jerusalem. So let's read chapters four and five. We're going to read the chapters together, and uh, then we'll talk about kind of the, the object lessons that are presented here and uh, what they mean and the, the different meanings of the different uh, stories that are told. And then we'll look at uh, both some general observations about the passage as well as some application, how we can apply uh, these things to our own lives. So let's read together, follow along, if you will, uh, Ezekiel chapter four and chapter five. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it. Set camps also against it and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a stage of state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their, of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you a day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords on you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. And your food that you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day. From day to day, you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen. From day to day, you shall drink. 
and you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now, I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung, on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this, that they may lack bread and water, and look at one another in dismay, and rot away because of their punishment. And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. And the third part you shall take and strike with a sword all around the city. And the third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheathe the sword after them. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And of these again you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I even I am against you and I will execute judgment in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of your abominations, I will do with you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgment on you, and any of you who survive, I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you. And a third part I will scatter to all the winds and will unsheathe the sword after them. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you. When I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes, I am the Lord I have spoken. When I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you. And when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. What a 
strong passage and strong rebuke and strong warning is being sent to the house of Israel, the, the God's chosen people here uh, by Ezekiel. He gives three object lessons throughout uh, these two chapters that are important for us to, to understand what he is wanting to say. The first one is he tells Ezekiel to build a model of Jerusalem. He tells him to uh, take these bricks that would have been uh, a part of the uh, scenery there in Babylon, Babylonia. Uh, he says to take these bricks and to make use these bricks to build a model of the city of Jerusalem. It'd be kind of like our kids today, right? They build these models of Legos just to destroy and tear them apart and, 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 and break them down. And that's exactly what he's told to do. He's told in, in this courtyard to build this model of the city of Jerusalem. And as he builds this model of Jerusalem, he also is forced to put the walls up. But then outside of the walls of the city, he is to build these little camps all around. And of course, we know that the military tactic of the day was to uh, encamp around your enemy outside its walls with the idea that you would cut off supplies so the supplies can no longer go in and out of the city. And the ultimate goal was to starve out the people, was to uh, to make it so that they couldn't get food, couldn't get water, couldn't get the needed supplies. And, and ultimately, they would, they would face starvation, which would cause them to either leave the city or uh, be weakened whenever the, the siege would happen. He also, uh, God also told Ezekiel to build these mounds of dirt uh, that would build up to the walls. And, and the idea there was that they would, as they had their camps around the, the outside of the wall, they then would, uh, would build mounds of dirt up to the wall so that they could use these mounds as ramps for their battering ramps. And so they could, they could come and eventually just continue to beat down on the walls. And eventually they would break those walls and overtake the city. Uh, so Ezekiel was basically to build a model of Jerusalem to show the way that the enemy was going to siege the city. The next object lesson that's given, and each of these object lessons would have been happening concurrently, uh, but the next object lesson was, was that he told Ezekiel that he was to go and lay on his side while being bound by ropes looking at the model that he had built. First of all, he was to go and to, to lay on his left side. Uh, he was to do this for 390 days. So more than a year, he was to go out every day. Um, we, we're not sure that it was like a total 390 years without any relief because he's told to fix food and water and, and those kind of things. But, it, but at minimum, every day he's to go out for 390 straight days, lay on his left side. And this would signify the 390 years of captivity and punishment for Israel, which was the northern kingdom of, of God's people. Next, he was to go and do the same thing on his right side for 40 days. And this was to represent Judah, the southern kingdom, and the 40 years of captivity for them as well. While he was laying on his left and right side, he was to be bound up in ropes. And this was to show that the Jews would not be able to escape this punishment. They would not be able to escape uh, the, the, the end result that, that they were facing. During this time that he was laying on either side, he was to uh, have very limited food and water. Uh, this would, uh, of course, signify a time of, of famine and barrenness that God's people would face. He was told then to use human dung to fuel the fire to, to cook his food. And when we read that, man, our, what, it's just it's disgusting, right? Our stomachs kind of turn within us. And we think, 
how disgusting that would be to use human dung to fuel the fire to cook your food that you're going to consume. And, and of course, we, we know that God had very strict rules for his people. And this was showing that, that in this time of captivity, they were uh, having to do things that were unclean. And I think the, the whole picture, the whole idea here that God is trying to stress to us is that God wants us to show how truly despicable our sin is and how despicable the sins of the people of Israel, uh, how despicable their sin was, because uh, it is something that is meant to turn our stomachs. It's meant to repulse us. And, and the reality is sin ought to have that same very effect on our lives. And it should have had the effect on the people of Israel as well. When God tells Ezekiel to do this, this is the only time that we see Ezekiel kind of say, wait a minute, God, you've asked me to do some crazy things, but I just don't know that I can do this. Um, he says, I just, I just don't know that I can defile my body um, by, by doing this. And we see, of course, that God granted a reprieve on that and instead allowed him to use uh, animal dung uh, to heat his food, to use that as the fuel instead. And, and this would have been a more common practice um, in this era, in this, in this time. We, we see as, as Ezekiel is, is, is measuring out his food and is eating very little, having very limited food and water during this time that, again, this is a picture of the, the starvation that the people of Israel inside Jerusalem would face uh, as well. Uh, this time of, of physical starvation, though, even spoke even greater uh, to the time of spiritual starvation that God's people were facing because they were being cut off from their worship and from their sacrifices. And, and so they were facing both physical starvation as well as spiritual starvation. And the reality is sin, uh, sin does rob us. It does bring both physical and spiritual consequences. Uh, the, the separation that comes from sin, the, the effects of sin, uh, affects us both physically as well as spiritually. And so we see here that uh, as Ezekiel lays on his side looking at the city, it's again just a picture uh, of God's displeasure uh, and the, the coming judgment on Jerusalem. The, the third and, and final object lesson that we see, and we start off at chapter number five here, is that he uh, was to take a sword and he was to uh, shave his head and his beard with a sword. Now, as we're in this time of the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, our, our barbers have been closed, right? Our, many of us have, have been talking about the need for haircuts. My wife has been on me, man, as soon as things open up, you've got to go get a haircut. Um, but I don't think I would ever get to a place of desperation where I would take a sword out and, and try to cut my head my hair uh, with a sword. Uh, but there were a few things that, that this would signify as well. One thing is that this would be an act of humiliation. Uh, the, the, the sword represented the enemy uh, and, and their um, overtaking the, another group of people. And so it would have been using the sword to cut his hair would have been a symbol of, of just really uh, humi humiliation from the enemy. Uh, but then also cutting, by, cutting hair by the sword was an act of mourning as well. And so both he would have been signifying the humiliation of the people of Israel as well as the time of mourning as they uh, knew that the, the impending doom of their city was, was upon them. After he cuts his hair off, he's then told to divide the hair into three different sections. Uh, one third of the hair would represent all of those who would be killed uh, by fire, by famine, and by plague. So by all of these natural disasters that would occur and different things that would happen. And so a third of the people, uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem would be killed by fire, famine, or plague. 
Another third represented those who would be killed by the enemy's sword. So as the enemy overran the walls and, and uh, brought siege on the city, a third of the inhabitants would be killed by the sword of the enemy. And then the final third represents those who would be scattered and dispersed. And so those who would be taken captive, those who would be removed and taken uh, away from the city. Uh, there is one, one line in there where Ezekiel was told to take a remnant from each of those groups and to put them uh, inside his robe. And he's going to address that a little bit later um, in the book here of Ezekiel a couple, in a couple chapters uh, down the road. But we see here that, that uh, the, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to be uh, taken in some way or another. A third would be killed by fire, famine, and plague. A third would be killed by the sword. And then a third would be scattered and dispersed and taken uh, into different forms of captivity. Ezekiel then, the rest of chapter 5, just goes into detail describing how sinful and wicked uh, the people were. You know, they were, they were there and were supposed, as God's chosen people, they were supposed to be a witness to the heathen, a witness to the nations around them. But it tells us that they had really, in many ways, had grown even more wicked than the heathen. I'm reminded of Paul's uh, admonition to the church at Corinth, where in 1 Corinthians, he tells them kind of the same thing. He says, you, you have engaged in such sinful behavior. And as he's uh, discussing the incest and the things that they're involved in, he said, man, you're, you've become even worse than those around you. And what a sad commentary on the people of God. As we are supposed to be witnesses, so often we allow ourselves to uh, become like the world and eventually in some ways even worse than the world when, uh, when, we, when we behave and act the way and ultimately sin against God the way that we do. So what are some observations? What are some things that we can glean from these two passages and these uh, kind of unusual stories and this unusual way that, that Ezekiel preached and proclaimed this message? The first observation that I see very clearly is, is number one, God is holy and he hates sin. God is holy and he hates sin. He cannot bear the presence of sin. In chapter four, verse three, as Ezekiel is building this model of Jerusalem, he is told to take an iron griddle and put that iron griddle between himself and the city so that he's not even looking upon the city. And this signifies God separating himself from the sins of Jerusalem. God couldn't even look on their, their sin. And so there's this, this, this barrier that is placed because of the sin. Reminded of the very beginning of, of time when Adam and Eve sinned against God and, 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 and sin brought that separation. They had to hide, right? Because they were, they, they were embarrassed and afraid and even had to put on clothes. And so for the first time, there was this separation between man and God because of sin. Ultimately, we see the, the greatest time of separation is when, when Jesus took our sin upon himself on the cross. This was the first time that he had ever experienced separation from God as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, we see that sin separates. Sin breaks that fellowship that we are called to enjoy as his people. But God is holy and he hates that sin. He longed to, to be in sweet communion with his people just as he longs to be in sweet communion with us but he is holy and he hates sin and he cannot bear the presence of sin. The second observation, the second thing that we see is that God keeps his word and he must punish sin. God keeps his word and he must punish sin. We often are quick to celebrate uh, God keeping his word when, it, when it's for good things, right? His, uh, when, he, when, he's, when he's showing graciousness and, and favor toward us. But the reality is the same God who keeps his word in those blessings is the same God who must keep his word in his judgment as well. He is just. 
He is righteous. He is holy. And he keeps his word. And his word is that he must, because he keeps his word, he must punish sin. His people had been clearly warned. They knew the law. They knew the consequences of not following that law. God is just, and he must keep his word. And the things that, that they were doing, were, as we said, were even more wicked than the heathen around them. And God could not allow that to go unpunished. They, they should have been a witness. They should have been doing what was right. And the fact that they were not meant that God had to keep his word and God had to punish them for their sin. The third thing that we see, the third observation we make is that God has a purpose and a plan for everything that he does. God has a purpose and a plan for everything that he does. I know how glad we are for that. In chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, he gives a little bit of a glimpse into his purpose in bringing this destruction on Jerusalem. He says, moreover, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and with furious rebukes. I am the Lord. I have spoken. He allowed these things to happen, really ultimately brought this judgment upon Jerusalem, upon his people, uh, but he did it as a witness to those outside of Israel. He did it, again, as, as a witness to his, uh, to his righteousness, to his holiness, to his, uh, the fact that, that he would keep his word. He did it as a witness to show this to those outside of Israel, but he also did this as a warning to those who were within Israel. He wanted them to see again uh, his his disdain and his and his his uh, hatred for sin, and he wanted them to to see that he that he was true to his word and that he was uh, righteous and just. And he wanted this to be a warning to them. Uh, his desire was for them to learn from this, to learn from these times, and to and to repent and turn away from their sin and turn back to him, to turn away from the ways of the world and embrace. Uh, the life that, that he had called them to, to renew their witness to the world around them. We see this happen so many times throughout history of the, of the children of Israel. I'm reminded of Psalm number 78, a Psalm of Asaph, where he uh, literally told them at the beginning, I'm going to warn, I'm going to show you the things that your fathers did. I'm, I'm doing this so that it can be a warning to you, so that you will not repeat the perpetual sins of your father and you won't continue to walk in their ways, but instead you will see the the destruction that sin brings, the pain that sin brings, the, the horror of the effects of sin. And instead you will turn from that sin and you will embrace the ways of God and you will walk in truth and you'll walk in righteousness. God is holy and he hates sin. God keeps his word and he, and he must punish sin. God has a purpose and a plan for everything he does. And the, the, the fourth observation is that God is gracious and merciful. God is gracious and merciful. Even with all that Israel did, he never forsook his promises. God continued and continues today to keep his covenant promises with his people. In, in, in chapter 5, uh, verse, verse 13, it's, it shows us that, that there would be a time when his wrath would be appeased, when his wrath would be satisfied. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. Some versions even say there, uh, say that, that God says, I will be appeased. The reality is there would be a time where he would return his face to them. And as we get near the end of this book, we'll see that time when, when God removes that barrier and he does embrace his people again. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 7-8 he tells his people here, for a small moment have I forsaken thee, 
but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. God hates sin, but at the same time, he keeps his word, but we are so thankful today that God is gracious and that God is merciful. So as we read these stories, look at these two chapters, how, how can we apply? What, what is the application for us today? Let me give you real quickly uh, four things, and we'll conclude our time together. Number one, we must abhor sin as God does. We must abhor sin as God does. We must see our sin the same way that God sees our sin. The reality is we deserve punishment. We deserve to be punished for our sin, and we must uh, have the same uh, hatred toward sin in our own lives. What happens oftentimes is I believe that we, as, as the people of God, we, we must reject complacency, right? We, we grow complacent with the sin in our life and those things that maybe, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Or, it's not, you know, this is just who I am and this is how I, I'm made. And, you know, it's, it's the way my dad was and my granddad was. And, you know, I'm probably going to pass this on. It's just kind of who I am and who it is. Folks, we've got to fight against this complacency. We must recognize sin in our life, and we must uh, repent of that sin, and we must abhor that sin, and we can't become complacent with sin that is in our lives. Not only must we reject complacency, but we must reject comparison. We oftentimes tend to compare our sin with the sins of others. We compare our life with others, and we say, well, you know what? I'm not as bad as the person down the road, or I'm not as, as bad as these, these worldly heathen that we see around us. And the problem is when we, when we say that, we're comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. The standard is not the world. The standard is not people down the street or people that we work with. The standard is God himself. The standard is God's holy word. And when we compare ourselves to God's holy word, we see that we fall short. We fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3 tells us. And so we can't just um, compare ourselves to others and think that as long as we're doing better than others, then we're okay. We've got to get to the place where we recognize the sin in our life and we hate that sin and we are no longer content to walk in sin. We must abhor sin as God does. Number two, we must resist the pull to be conformed to this world. We must resist the pull to be conformed to this world. That's what happened with the children of Israel over and over and over again, right? They, they saw the heathen, and before long, they would allow themselves to be pulled into that, into that same model, that same way of life of idolatry. And, 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 and we see that even they, they would even take it further as they uh, would continue to walk in the sins of the people around them. Can't help but think of Paul's admonition to us in Romans chapter 12. Of course, we're told to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And in verse 2 of chapter 12, he says, don't be conformed to this world. The word conform there literally carries the idea of being squeezed into the mold of the world, into the, the mold of the philosophy of this world around us, the thinking of those who are outside of Christ. He says, don't allow yourself to be squeezed into their mold. This is something that often happens gradually, right? It's a, it's a slow fade into this thing. And he says, don't uh, let yourself be squeezed into their mold. Don't let yourself be formed uh, and fashioned into the ways of the world. But instead, he says, what? Don't be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This idea of transform, transformation, it's this change from the inside out 
it's the word metamorphosis, right? Where, where instead of allowing ourselves to be squeezed into the mold of the world, we instead allow God's word to renew our mind, to change our thinking, to change us from the inside out. And that's the work that God is wanting to do in us. That's what he wants to do in each and every one of us. So we must resist the pull to be conformed to this world and instead allow God's word to transform and change us from the inside out. Number three, we must surrender to God's discipline. We must surrender to God's discipline. It's important that we not be a stiff-necked people, that we not push against the discipline of God. Hebrews 12 tells us that, that God's discipline, it's, it's not enjoyable. It's not fun when God has to, uh, has, has to discipline us and to try to bring us back to himself. But it is helpful. It is needed in our lives so many times. And we can't resist that. When God is trying to discipline us, we must surrender to that discipline and, and allow God to, to bring us back to himself. In James chapter four, as he's dealing with this idea of walking in worldliness and, and, and pride and those things of the world, he says, uh, we're, we're told there to humble ourselves. And if we will humble ourselves and submit to God, that what God gives grace. He gives grace when we submit ourselves, when we humble ourselves before him. And so as we are facing God's discipline because of the sin in our life, we must surrender to that discipline and accept God's grace and allow him to humble us and draw us to himself. We must abhor sin as God does. We must resist the pull to be conformed to the world. We must surrender to God's discipline. And finally, we must be grateful for God's grace and mercy. We must be grateful for God's grace and mercy. Man, I'm so thankful for the gospel. I'm so thankful for the grace and mercy of God. As I said earlier, we deserve the full punishment. We deserve to face the full wrath of God because of our sin. But ultimately, God's wrath for sin was poured out on Christ so that it does not have to be poured out on me. That's the message of the gospel. I deserve it, but God took it upon himself so that I would not have to face it. And now, even as Christ followers, those who have accepted this gift of salvation because of God's work on the cross, even now, we still uh, tend to walk in our flesh. We still tend to fall short in, in this, this process of God transforming and shaping and molding us. And in these times where we uh, sin against God, God graciously and mercifully woos us back to himself. He doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't uh, uh, push us away, but instead he woos his children back to himself, lovingly draws us back to himself. Man, I'm so thankful for his grace and mercy. I'm so thankful for uh, even the discipline that sometimes I have to endure because I know that it's God's design to display his grace and mercy in my life. The big takeaway here is that, that God loves us so much that through Christ, he paid the price for our sin, but that love is also so great and so strong. He loves us enough that he is not willing to leave us to walk in our sin. He wants us to experience his fullness, his joy. Uh, he wants us to experience his, his fellowship and that sweet communion. Brothers and sisters, may we walk today and may we walk every day in his truth, in the truth of his word, and embrace the power of the gospel at work 
in our lives. I want to thank you for joining us for the Defender Bible Study today. This week, we're praying for the country of Liberia. I just want to ask you to join us in a time of prayer as we pray for the country of Liberia. We want to pray for the president of Liberia uh, and for others that lead in government there. We want to pray for the church in Liberia. Uh, we pray that churches would, would have purity of doctrine and that, that godly leaders would be raised up. We want to also ask you to pray for the ministry of REAP. Uh, this is one of Lifeline's partners that trains and equips older, older orphans uh, with life and job skills. If you're familiar with our Mission Kid uh, resource, our curriculum that we have for children, um, it, this year we are focusing on this ministry of REAP there in Liberia. Uh, you can check that out at lifelinechild.org slash mission kid. Uh, we want to pray today for the REAP founder, Christine Norman. Uh, pray for her health. She has just recently finished some cancer treatments, uh, but she did get a good report in March, so we praise the Lord for that. But continue to pray for Christine's health. Pray for the development uh, of the REAP Institute. Uh, this is a nine-month vocational school that uh, serves vulnerable young adults from uh, Monrovia and Bintal. Uh, we want to pray that, that, that they would uh, be able to help these young people develop job and life skills in a gospel-centered environment. And then we want to pray for their upcoming REAP camps. Uh, currently, they, they had to cancel their most recent camp in April. It's been postponed uh, until they can figure out a different time for that. But they are planning another camp in November as well. And so we want to be praying for those camps and that they will be able to, to happen so these kids can uh, get this, uh, this support and this training uh, in this gospel environment. Uh, we also want to pray for Destiny Nuan, uh, a pastor of the pastor of Life Changer Assembly um, there in Liberia, and for Hope in Action as well, which is a uh, NGO. NGO uh, that, that he leads also. Uh, we want to pray for the church and pray that uh, Pastor Destiny will, will preach only sound doctrine from the pulpit uh, and that we'll, we'll do well in that, but then also that he'll be able to use the NGO Hope in Action effectively to minister to uh, orphanage directors, caregivers, and vulnerable children. And then uh, these, these directors that are being ministered to, we want uh, also to pray that, that they will have the opportunity and that they will continue to, uh, to love and provide for the children in their care. And then finally, we want to give the Lord some praise uh, for things that are happening there. We want to praise the Lord for uh, children that are being impacted by the REIT camps. Uh, and by this life skills training. Uh, and then we want to praise the Lord uh, for all those who are faithfully serving uh, orphans uh, all throughout Liberia, a country that has um, been ravaged by famine, been ravaged by civil war and other issues. And so we're, we're grateful today for those uh, who are faithfully serving those who have been orphaned. So we join me together and let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we conclude our time uh, together today. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, God, I love you, and I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I thank you that you are just and righteous. Uh, Lord, I thank you that you have a standard in yourself and a standard in your word that you've called us to, to live according to. And, and God, I pray that, uh, Lord, that we would, would, would understand that and we would see that and we would recognize you as a uh, God of majesty, but also a God of justice. And uh, may we have the same... Uh, abhorrence for sin in our lives that you do. And may we view it the same way. And God, may we walk in your truth and walk in your, uh, in your ways. And may we not be a stiff-necked people that fight against uh, your discipline, but God, may we allow you to draw us to yourself. And may we be faithful, God, to preach and proclaim the fact that sin must be dealt with and uh, that the price for our sin was ultimately paid for in Jesus Christ. 
And so may we seek to lead others in accepting that same truth, that same reality, and turning from their sin and placing their faith and trust in you as well. God, today we pray uh, for the country of Liberia and specifically uh, for the orphans of that country. We pray for their leadership, that you would, uh, God, just work in their hearts, help them to lead justly, to lead righteously. We pray that the church would have great effect and the church would, would step up and, and, and proclaim the gospel uh, in, in, uh, in purity and, and in the right way. We pray that you would raise up additional godly leaders, God, to preach and proclaim your truth as well. Uh, Lord, we lift up the ministry of REAP there in Liberia. What a great, uh, Lord, group of people that are seeking to train and equip these orphans. And I just pray, God, for Christine and her team there, uh, that you would empower them, that you'd give them wisdom, especially as they are having to tweak their methods a little bit because of this pandemic and other things going on around them. I pray that you will uh, give them great wisdom as they seek to make the right decisions. Uh, we thank you for the good report that Christine received on her health, and we pray that you would continue to, to touch and heal her body and strengthen her and uh, give her the ability to continue to, to lead in this way. Uh, God, we pray for Pastor Destiny and, and uh, his church as well as his, his ministry, the uh, hope and action there, God. We pray that, again, that you will allow him the ability to uh, preach truth, that he will stand for truth, that he will preach sound doctrine, that he would uh, only preach your word and the message that you have for the people around him. Uh, we pray as he ministers to other orphanage directors and caregivers that uh, he will do so in a way that, uh, again, equips them with the gospel because we know it's the gospel that changes lives. It's the gospel that makes the difference. We pray that those directors and others who are directly caring for the, the orphans in that uh, community and in that country, God, we, we pray that they would uh, love those kids well. And again, that they would point them to the power of the gospel because it's the only thing that can transform their lives as well. Uh, God, we thank you for all of those kids that are being impacted by the cancer. I thank you for the churches who have stepped up to provide funding necessary for these kids to be able to go to camp. We pray that you continue to provide uh, that funding and those resources so that more kids can be engaged and involved uh, in this training. And again, from a gospel perspective, um, and God, we just give you praise for those who are faithfully serving uh, the, these orphans throughout Liberia, God. Thank you for their willingness to put the needs of themselves aside uh, for the needs of others and their willingness to, to serve these young people and these children well. Uh, God, again, what an honor, what a privilege it is to be your people. Uh, thank you that you have not turned your back on us. I pray that you'll continue to draw us to yourself, help us to walk in your truth, and we will be careful to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor for it. For it's in the wonderful name of Jesus, my Savior, I pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.